be right with God. If Jesus is the only way, what is there about Jesus that allows us to be right with God? The answer to that question is grace alone. And here's the way I answer it. It is only through the grace of God, through Christ, that man can have salvation provided. Now I'm going to un- un- undo this whole thing about grace alone now, but that's the answer. How do we find out how to be right with God? Through the Bible only. The Bible tells us. Well, what does the Bible say? The Bible says Christ only. Well, what is it about Christ? Well, it's the grace of Christ only. So then question four is, help me a little bit, what would be question four? How do I get that grace? Right? How do I obtain the grace that Christ wants to give? And the answer is, Ephesians 2.8, for by grace, by grace are you saved, those prepositions matter, through faith. You obtain it through faith. Faith is like the pipeline that is connected between the grace of God and sinful man that allows the grace to come to you. It comes through faith. So the answer, the way I answer it is, how do we obtain this grace? Answer, it is only through faith. Again, these are all onlys. Only through faith that we can receive the grace of God for salvation. Question five. Why did God do it this way? Why did God make it this way? Why did God say Bible alone, Jesus alone, grace alone, faith alone? Why did God say it this way? So he alone would see, receive the glory for all that he does through sin, for sinful people. How do we find out we can be right with God? The Bible is the only authority. What does the Bible say? The Bible says Jesus is the only way. How do we get that? What is it about Jesus? It is the grace of God through Christ that provides salvation. Well, how do we get that grace? It is only through faith that we receive it. And why has God chosen to save people in this way? It is so that he alone would receive the glory. Now, all of that which we just said seems pretty trivial trivial compared to finding out whether or not Michigan won a football game yesterday, right? People are just so lost and dead in their sins that they elevate these trivial things to prime importance. And I know that's all marketing, and you're saying, well, I, I understand that, but that's the way people live their lives. That's what's important to them. So as we come to this third section on grace alone, we remind ourselves that the Reformers uncovered these things. They didn't discover them. In other words, they, they were, we said it this way, they're excavators, not innovators. And we're coming back to Ephesians 2 for the reasons that I already expressed this morning. Grace has been defined in many different ways, and most of them have been trite. Unmerited favor, God's riches at Christ's expense, spelling out the word grace. Many people equate grace and mercy as being very similar where grace is God giving you something you don't deserve and mercy is God withholding something from you that you do deserve. It's been written about in songs, most of which we sung today. It is called Wonderful, Marvelous, and Amazing. But why is it grace alone and what does this mean? The only way we can understand why it is necessary that it it must be grace alone is to see ourselves in our sinful, wicked condition. Okay? Grace alone must force us to look at ourselves and see why it must be of grace because we are so polluted and tainted by sin there there is nothing we could do to somehow attain unto a righteous God. And so I define it this way. Grace means this. It means that sinners have no claim on God. God owes us nothing except wrath. He saves us only because it pleases Himself. And there is no other reason He does it. 
Sinners, have, this is my definition. Sinners have no claim upon God. God owes sinners nothing but wrath or punishment for their sins. He saves us only because it pleases Himself. He doesn't, he doesn't uh, save us because there is any value or worth in ourselves. And grace is necessary because of what is known as the total inability of humankind to ever respond to spiritual truth. So we could say it this way. If salvation were not of grace, no one could be saved because no one is seeking God. No one is asking that first question that we ask. How can sinful man be right with God? Why did you originally ask that question? Right? How did you think back to your conversion? What led you to the point of conviction where you started understanding that God is holy and you're sinful and I got to be right with that God somehow? What prompted in your heart those questions? What was the match that lit the wood on fire? Yeah, and his the whole initiate yeah, that's what happened, but what initiated that whole process? Grace. Grace initiated that process because you're not asking that question. No one asks that question because they are unable to ask that question because the Bible calls them spiritually dead. Last week, we talked about, as we talked about Christ alone, we mentioned that man is not inherently good, man is not mostly good, and man is not even somewhat good. Man is totally corrupt, totally evil, and completely, because of that, they are completely humankind, completely separate from God. When we talk about the depravity of man, we are talking about man's complete and total inability spiritually to do or think any spiritual thought. Now, how did this all come about? As I said, grace is only understood in light of our sin. And the results of our sin are far-reaching. We have two types of sin. And, and a lot of these things we've said so many times before, but it's, it's wonderful to remember them. Um, we have sin that we inherit, and we call that that we have a sin nature. And we actually have sins that we commit. And we call that just sin action, you know, actions of our sin. So, so we're guilty twice fold. We're guilty simply because we have a nature of sin. And we have guilt because of sin of actions. And we've, we've said it this way before. I, I remember at, a, at the funeral that we did for, I think it was your friend, uh, your friend's mom. And I was illustrating sin and I talked about Jessa. And I said, hey, we all have sin. I never had to teach Jessa how to sin. And someone like recoiled at that thought. Like, wait a minute, a child is innocent. You just mentioned it about Lila last week uh, when you saw the baby. Oh, isn't she so cute and innocent? No, she is not. I mean, she's cute, but she is not innocent. She is guilty and she is depraved. There is, there is nothing, this is, this, is, this is something we have to grasp. There is nothing that we can do for our children or for ourselves that will somehow have that light come on of understanding spiritually. Every one of us must first be touched by the grace of God because we are completely unable due to our inherited sin. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. We are counted guilty because in Adam sinned, and so we all have sinned. We'll come to Ephesians 2 in a second. Ephesians 5, 12 to 14 is a great study there as far as inherited or original sin. And then Romans 3, 23. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And because of that sin, there's so many different ramifications. Number one, we are guilty. Sin causes us to be guilty before God. These things demand that God punishes us. This is why God owes us nothing. 
but punishment. Because of our guilt, we are guilty and we are depraved. We are completely corrupt. Romans 3, 10 to 18. Our speech, our walk, our purposes, our motives, our actions, our attitude, all of those things are tainted by sin. Romans 3, 10. There is no one righteous. There is nothing good in man. Paul says that. I know that nothing good dwells in my flesh. And because of our guilt and depravity, we are alienated or we are separated from God. We are at enmity to God. We're all, in a sense, giving God the fist and saying, we don't want anything to do with you. Enmity really reflects an inner attitude where separation is really talking about a position. Our attitude towards God is hatred and our position towards God is separation. Ephesians 2, 11-13. We're not going to come to that passage this morning. Romans 8, 7 and 8. The carnal mind is enmity towards God. Because we are guilty, it almost it follows this pattern. Because we are sinners, we are guilty, we are depraved, we are at enmity with God, we are separated or alienated from God, and because of all that, we are under the wrath of God. Here's what people say. Here's what people say when they think about the grace of God, right? Well, what if God's grace doesn't come to the baby? And what if God's grace doesn't come? To, what if God in his grace doesn't save my friend or my family member? That just doesn't seem fair. And we say over and over, you don't want God to be fair. You want God to be gracious. If he was fair, nobody would go. He would touch nobody with the gospel. We do not want God to be fair. We want him to be gracious because we are under condemnation. John 3, verse 36, it is pictured by wrath. The idea that uh, it says, uh, he that has a son has life, but he that does not have the son, the wrath of God is already abiding on him. He is prepared. It's the, the wrath of God is not just something that people are waiting for. They are under the wrath of God now. The punishment for sin is not something that will come. It is something that's already happened there separate from God even now. And this condemnation is proved in a specific way. How do we know that sin really is condemned by God? What is the everyday proof that sin is condemned by God? Death. This very person I was talking to about heaven. Well, I know I'm not going to live forever. That's exa- How can a person like that think about these truths without without really giving themselves to consider their future. Death proves that God hates and condemns sin. Not only that, Ephesians 2, 1-3 tells us that this sin characterizes our life. I think we're open to Ephesians 2. We've read it before. It characterizes our life. We are controlled by the God of this world. Uh, we are under sin. We are, we are, uh, the Spirit is at work and the sons of disobedience, verse 2. We live in the passions of our flesh. We carry out the desires of our body. We're by nature. I mean, this is a disgusting, terrible situation until you come to verse 4 when now we see the grace of God at work. It says, but God. But God. Paul makes a tremendous shift when he comes to this section talking about the depravity man. And here's what's, here's what's a completely Otherwise, 
children of the devil who is at work in sons of disobedience. But now we are made alive both by this Christ. We have the difference between God doing it, uh, salvation, our salvation through his grace or us trying to earn it through our works. What is, here's a question, what is our position apart from Christ? What is our position? We are spiritually dead. It is not that we are like lying in a hospital, sick, and we need, we need like Jesus to come into the room and, and kind of make us better, like, like we'll kind of work towards it and the medicine will help and Jesus kind of come in and if you kind of see that as an illustration, we, we're not in the hospital, we're in the morgue. We're dead and we, and we don't need help, we need life. We don't need assistance. We need someone to regenerate us. A lot of people have often asked the question, well, well, what, what is the order of salvation? We were in the other building. We, we went through the whole order salutis, the Latin order of salvation. And we understand that the new birth must come before we exercise faith. Regeneration must happen first because no one is, is, just needs assistance or a little kick. They need to be made alive, and that happens by the grace of God. Our position is that we are spiritually dead. We are completely cut off from the life that is in Christ. John 5.24 tells us that when we believe in Him, we pass from death unto life. We know that if we were to die, if I was a drop dead right now, I would lose all communication and all interest in the physical world. It wouldn't matter if we were going to McDonald's later. It wouldn't matter if the church was burning down. None of those things would matter because I would be completely out of touch with the physical world. There's, there's no response that I can make. And so spiritual death is the same way. There is no responding to spiritual truth until the grace of God wakens a heart through regeneration. Salvation is all of God. You don't bring anything to it. And again, the last question is, well, why does He do it that way? So He can receive the glory that no one can boast and say, well, I provided something. If you're sitting here today assured that you are a Christian, the only reason that has happened is because God has graced you. God has done everything in the process for you, even given you the ability to exercise faith and repentance. It's all His. And when Martin Luther re rediscovered that, along with the rest of the Reformers, they were recoiling against a church that was saying, no, the church provides that. Or the meritorious works of Mary and, and long-dead saints provide that. Or your money provides it. What was the phrase, remember? As soon as a coin in the box springs, a soul from purgatory springs. I don't have the poem right, but it's something like that. And Martin Luther is climbing up those steps for his grandparents and for his parents. What am I doing, he says. Right? And, and, and he's recoiling against a whole system that still exists today. Telling people that they're doing something for their salvation. Work for it. Pay for it. Earn it in some way. What is the cause of our spiritual death? If you look at the, look at the passage now, what, is, what caused it? Well, our trespasses and sins. Our acts and our nature. And what position does this put us in? It puts us in a hopeless position. I mean, I've said it a couple different ways, but I'll say it this way. In other words, there is no hope for anyone unless God regenerates them. There's no hope for anyone. 
The definition for regeneration, or the Bible term for regeneration, what is a, what is a Bible term for regeneration? Can, can you think of one, one that we might use? You must be born again. Born again. That's what, that's what regeneration is. You must have a, a new life. And so when Nicodemus comes to Christ saying, good teacher, right, we know that you are from God because no one could do these works that you do, and he just says, you know what, pal? <laughs> amen, amen. Uh, unless a man is born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. The regener- the re- anyone who is spiritually dead in here cannot be shaken alive by the pastor. I wish it, were ch- I wish it could happen that way. But it can't. No one can be brought back from the dead spiritually because there's a fog machine and cool spotlights on the stage. No one can be brought back from the dead spiritually because the pastor looks cool and he's got chains and skeleton shirt and and everybody's sipping their latte. And all of this is going to provide the Spirit with the atmosphere he needs to do the work to draw someone to himself. All that's stupid. Because the only way, this is, this, is how, this is how great the grace of God is, is that someone, I, I don't remember who the historical figure was, we'll come to it in church history, was, was sitting, I wish I would have thought about that, I'm just thinking about it now, was sitting on a bench and heard somebody reading, uh, somebody saying, uh, tola lege or something, Go, get up and read, get up and read. I think it was, this might have been Augustine, I'm not sure. Forgive me if that's wrong. And he just went and started reading and, and he said, I, I just immediately was transformed another person walked in to a church service and they were reading the preface uh to luther's commentary on romans (laughs) that sounds pretty boring the preface to it and then i think he said something like i felt my heart strangely warmed it's like that happens because god this is what john 1 12 says as many as received him to them he gave the power to become the sons of god they were not born of will nor to those who run, nor if they were born of the Spirit. It is, it is not a human effort that somehow people can come to this spiritual knowledge. It is, we are hopeless outside of the regenerating work of Jesus Christ. So if, God has re, if you're assured of your salvation, it's because God has first regenerated you. And everybody should just be screaming in their seats, Hallelujah, Amen. Because there's nothing I could do to provide that. Well, who is this the case for? Paul says it over and over in the passage. This is a universal situation. Paul says everyone is affected by this. He says it at the end of verse number 3 when he says the rest of mankind is included in this which flies in the face of all those who say they are good people. He is not saying this is just part of the, of the, uh, the, uh, the depraved and decadent tribes out somewhere who don't have the the civilized way of living like we do here in the States, right? He's saying this is true of everyone. All those who are apart from God like this are spiritually dead. And they are like that by their nature and birth. This is how it comes upon them. And the penalty of this is to be under wrath and the curse of death. This is a living death that affects our lives. We walk according to the course of this world. We walk according, the passage says, to the prince of the power of the air, the devil. He is at work in the sinner who is described as a child of disobedience. These are the two categories that we always mention. You're either a child of God or a child of the devil. But that ruler was killed at the cross so that Christ could provide salvation for us. This wrath that God talks about here in verse number 3 again. I'm sorry, my verse numbers are really small. It says, 
Verse 2, among whom we all, there it is again, the universal situation, we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the mind, of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath. That wrath is not a, um, you know, our, our kind of wrath is almost uh, described as like an outburst where we become furious with something, we just kind of fly off the handle. We kind of lose it for a minute and then we come back and we're kind of resolved not to act like that any longer. That, God is not kind of a fly off the handle anger. That wrath is defined as a settled indignation that is just fixed upon the sinner. And then he has, in his grace, decided to regenerate some of us to bring us to that knowledge of eternal life. Why did God do that? That's kind of going to, we're kind of coming down to a focal point here. I said, to understand the grace of God, we must ex- understand ourselves as sinners. I hope we've done a good enough job expressing that. I hope so. So why did God do this? Why did he do this? So you think, about our, you think about us being completely depraved, totally corrupt, separate from God, under condemnation, guilty because of our nature and sinners. The wrath of God settled down upon us. Then why would God, why would God in his grace choose to save any of us? The passage goes on to tell us. Why would he do this? Let me, let me give you the, the ABCs of this. Okay, Why God did it. He did it, first of all, because of his great character. And these are the three mentions uh, characterizations of him look at verse number four but god here's here's the dark and dismal situation that we've talked about over and over but god here it is first being rich in mercy so if you take notes this would be first reason god did it is because of his mercy it's from an old testament word that means god's steadfast and loyal love and it was used all the time in the old testament when god would continue to remain merciful to Israel who was unfaithful. It refers to love and generosity that is completely unexpected. Micah 7, verses 18 and 19 say this, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and he will subdue our iniquities. He will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious. God shows mercy to people who are in the position to have wrath poured out on them. Often, the definition in the Old Testament seemed to indicate that mercy was brought to people who were in a position of calamity, not misfortune, um, you know, not, not where people might, you know, we hear about fires in, in California. We kind of have this pity, oh, that's so unfortunate that they're going through that. I wish we could do something. It's, it's the idea that mercy comes to people who stand in calamity. And it's a calamity of their own making. So, so God, is, God sees us in this condition and, and still exercises mercy. Like verse number three is such a great, it's such a great turn. It just spins so quickly, doesn't it? When it says, all of mankind is under the wrath of God, and then it just spins, but God is rich in mercy and desires to, to, to save some of those people who are only set up for a position of wrath. It's also described, if we had time uh, to go to another passage, we could go to, to Romans chapter 5 and look at that. Secondly, not only is it, is it mercy, it mentions also, continuing on in verse 4, God being rich in mercy because of the great Love, that would be number two, another reason he did this. Because he loves us. A quote from C.S. Lewis. God, who needs nothing, God, who needs nothing, 
loves into existence holy, superfluous creations in order that He may love them. He creates the universe already foreseeing, or should we say seeing. There are no tenses in God. He sees the buzzing cloud of flies about the cross. He sees the flayed back pressed against the uneven stake. He sees the nails driven into the nerves, the repeated torture of back and arms as it time after time for the sake of a breath is hitched up. Here in His love, the diagram of love Himself, the inventor of all loves. That's, that's profound. Because that's, that's what Romans 5 says. But God demonstrates His love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't it interesting the way Lewis puts it? Here we have this group of people who are destined for nothing but God's wrath. And God, like he says, already seeing, there's no tense in God, he knows this, sees the flies around the cross, sees the bruised back of Christ, and he still goes through with that. Why did he do that? Why did he do that? Why did he do that if you could earn it somehow yourself? He did it because he loves us. And the third reason is what we're, what we're talking about today is his grace. He is rich in mercy. He has great love toward us. And then the end of verse 5 it is by His grace we are saved. He is not acting out of some sort of obligation. And, and like in the ESV, I think in the, in the Old King James it had a parenthesis around these, but in the ESV it's like a hyphen, right? Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, it's a hyphen. By grace you have been saved. I almost feel like Paul is waiting to say that. He's going to say it in verse 8 and 9. This is a very familiar verse, for by grace are you saved through faith. But it's almost like he can't wait to get to that point. He just got to, he just gots to get it out. So he just includes it in a hyphen. Hey, by the way, it's grace by which you have been saved. I have to say that. He assures us over and over in this passage that grace is what provides our salvation. There is no deliverance from the wrath of God unless God is to act. His character is mercy. His motivation is love. And the basis for salvation is grace. It is all of the gracious character of God. And the fourth characteristic that is briefly mentioned is his kindness. His kindness. A compassion that moves him to action. He raised up together that he might show the immeasurable riches, this is verse 7, the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us. Luke 6 tells us, and we just talked about that passage, that God is even kind to those who are unthankful, to those who are evil. Ephesians 4.32 says that God's kindness is best expressed in his forgiveness. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind and forgiving even as God forgave you. Romans 2 verse 4 says God's kindness should lead people to repentance. I mean, how wicked and evil must man be that they can recoil against this good and kind God? Titus verse, uh, chapter 3, or, excuse me, Titus chapter 2, I think it's the verse that we read in Sunday school, the kindness of our Savior appeared. This is the God of grace, merciful, loving, and kind. When we are in a terrible calamity, uh, God rescues us. And, and the illustration is often given of a guy who's like swimming out in sea and needs a life preserver. That's not the case. He's dead. He's not swimming at all. He's dead. And he must be born again. So why did God do it? He did it because of his great character. Now what did he do? What did his grace do? And we'll finish with this. What did his grace do? Let's continue the passage. First, it made us alive. He made us alive with Christ. Where are we at here? Verse numbers, uh, back in verse number 6, he, excuse me, verse number 5. He made us alive together with Christ. This is, of course, in contrast with our being dead. Outside of Christ, we are dead. 
Inside of Christ, we are alive. Outside of Christ, we are in bondage to our sin. Inside of Christ, we are free to live and serve Him. Outside of Christ, we are controlled by the devil. Inside of Christ, we are free from that. Outside of Christ, we are under the wrath of God. Inside of Christ, Christ Himself takes the wrath of God for our sins. We want to recognize what that wrath looks like. We need to look no further than the cross of Christ to see what we deserved ourselves. Because of that, we have freedom and forgiveness. Romans 8, verses 10 and 11. If Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. You think back to Lazarus being raised from the grave, right? And he's dead. He's not sick, he's dead. Just like that, we were spiritual corpses who couldn't respond unless, verse 4, but God. So he made us alive. Then he raised us up together with Christ. Colossians 2.12 and 3.1 indicate this as well. But it says it in verse 6, He raised us up. We are, we are talking about a spiritual resurrection that we've had, a new life, shackles to sin broken. And then we sit together with Christ in the heavenly places, symbolizing the freedom and authority we now enjoy with Christ. And the very purpose of all of this is so that we can be shown off in the future as trophies of His grace. That's what verse 7 is really saying. In the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Every year, we get a little ribbon for being in the parade. You know where they end up? I think one's in the basement, down by the microwave somewhere. They're in file cap- I mean, We throw them away. We don't like hang these everywhere. We used to uh, take teens to something called the Harvest Fest in, in Flint every year. and There was this contest where you would you would stand on one four-by-four square and a kid would hang on a rope and swing over to another four-by-four square and land on it and then send the rope back to another member of the group. And the goal was to get as many people on this little square. So you, you start hugging each other and stacking up real high and, and you get 14, 15, 16 people on this thing, on this little square box. And finally, one person, usually it's a junior higher, comes and kicks the whole thing down and... and Throughout the day, kids are trying to compete with that. So we won that thing like four or five years in a row, and we get this huge trophy, right? They sit in the room, and they're like, they're, hey, look what, we, look what we have accomplished, right? And we're, you're, you know, we, we get to the next year, and we start announcing it. Hey, we got to go defend this uh, championship that we have. Imagine this in heaven. This is really what we, have, we will become. We, in a sense, are the, are, it, it's, it's like God saying, look not at what we have accomplished. Look at what I have accomplished. And we become trophies of His grace. In a sense, this is, this is God's success story. And it's not something that we have done, but that's exactly what the passage says. In the coming ages, that's talking about a future time, He might show or display the riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Every single person who is walking around in heaven will say, I am here because of the grace of God. And they are trophies in a sense. There'll be a ribbon on every one of us probably. Grace. It ain't going to say donated $500 to the church. It ain't going to say was a Baptist. Anyone who goes, goes because of the grace of God. By grace you have been saved. Through faith. That's how we obtain it. We'll talk about that next week. Not of works and not of yourselves, lest anyone should boast. Someone who comes to you and says, what must I do to be saved? You know what you could really say? 
Nothing. That's right, nothing. Why? He did it all for you. There's nothing you should do. Just agree with all that He's done and accept it. I never really considered that before, but it's an interesting way to put it. He has done it all. We do not do anything. The only way we obtain that grace, kind of jumping towards next week, is by just believing that this is the way we get it and accepting it by faith and abandoning all other hopes and plans that we might have. This is not universal. God's grace is not universal. That's what the passage kind of teaches here. Verse number 8, by grace you have been saved, but it comes through faith. God's grace is not a universal grace. No matter what Rob Bell says, love wins is, is false. Some even believe this, this total heretical teaching that even Satan will eventually be redeemed. That over a period of infinite number of years in eternity, that everyone who has been cast into hell, that God's love will somehow win them over. And eventually everyone, including Satan himself, this idea of universalism is, boy, Satan would love everybody to believe. I bet you Satan wishes that were true. Well, he doesn't because he's so evil and wicked. He, he could never subject himself to God. But he, he wants the world to believe that. Grace is only given to those who will exercise that faith. It is not a universal situation. Romans 4, verse 5 tells us that. Romans 5, verse 17 tells us that. I think we've said it over and over. There is nothing within us that merits salvation. There is nothing we can do. Salvation, none of it originates within us. All our works can produce is sinfulness. Like A lot of people like to say, well, we have, this, we have this free will. We can exercise this free will. All you're doing in your free will is exercising it towards sin. You, so you have a free will, but you're completely and totally depraved. So what about that free will is ever going to choose something holy? Is ever going to choose something right? That, that will must be changed and regenerated first before you have the ability to choose what's right. And God even gives you that ability. It is all by grace. Grace alone that God gives. Let's bow our heads to pray. Father, thanks for this incredible reminder today and fantastic comfort to us that is by your grace and your grace alone that we are saved. Thank you for giving it to us even though we deserve nothing but punishment and judgment and wrath and your anger. And Father, may our people who are here today, may our people who are connected with this church, the name of our church, Grace, is a reminder. May, may the people in our community get and grasp this message before it is too late. The prevalent teaching of our day is that, is that it can be earned or it, we deserve it. God, we deserve nothing but your judgment and we praise you today that you have given us your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.